Looks like we have a fine crowd. I certainly want to thank the singers today. Thank you, Marcus, very much. I know he helped put these programs together. And the different groups that we have singing, it really is special. It's very, very fine. And it adds so much. And some of the individual solos are good, but somehow these, when they sing all together, since we don't have any, you know, uh, top metropolitan stars, when they sing together, they all sound like metropolitan stars. And that really helps a lot. So we appreciate that music very much. Thanks, Mr. Ronaldo, for the fine sermonette. There's nothing more important to speak about and think about than love, and that's what he did, and certainly we want to have that and emphasize that. I'm going to be covering one facet of that, or actually even something larger than that in a sense today, as I'll mention in a moment. But I do thank God for the growth we've been having. We've certainly been blessed to be on, you know, the Black Entertainment Network now, and now we're going on a better time in a few days on ION Network. And I'm sure the increase in the mail is going to be coming up this autumn, and we're going to see growth in the work as never before, as prophecy speeds up. So we're grateful, and thank all of you for your part in that. Brethren and young people, and I would like young people and our newer members to think in or listen in especially carefully today, because I want to talk to you about and have us focus on a key issue, a key truth that is needs much more emphasizing. It's something Mr. Armstrong talked about from time to time, and we do not emphasize it perhaps as much as we should. In fact, I know that we don't, and some of us take it for granted, so I'm going to come back on this from time to time, and I think all of us need to think about this. What is the difference in our services and in our private conversations than those of the original Christians? If you were to sit in on a church service in Ephesus or Corinth or in Antioch, in any of the churches at that time where Paul was the minister or Peter or James or John, what would be one of the main differences you would notice? What would be one of the emphases in the sermons that we don't have very often? What would be the excitement of the brethren? We have excitement about the work growing, although we don't show it a lot. I think I've kidded you. We, it, it wouldn't be wrong to have a little bit more enthusiasm, and I hope we can do that. We don't need to all holler amen every few minutes, but we could have a little bit more enthusiasm and certainly even applause for unusual music or unusual situations. Almost felt like applauding today after the wonderful uh, singing from the quartet. But they certainly have that in the Jewish world, no question about that. But what would be the difference? What would the people be talking about a lot? And what would you really notice as one of the themes and the things the brethren would be really excited about and the thing they would feel really passionately about? Think about this, brethren and young people. A long time ago, in a place far away, two very magnificent beings existed. In John chapter 1, let's begin reading in John chapter 1 of your Bible, and here's a scripture I think we're all familiar with, but maybe we need to review it. It's one of the most basic passages in the Bible, a fundamental thing it describes, and frankly, the world does not understand this. They talk about it, but they don't really understand it. Even the preachers don't understand it. You can see that by what they preach. In the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning, the very beginning, 
Some of the old fundamentalist preachers think that was 6,000 years ago. No, that was not 6,000 years ago. That may have been 6 billion or 6 trillion years ago. We we don't know, and they don't know either. They have various ways of figuring these things, but they don't know. They have, of course, uh, various systems they have used, and they often change around billions of years. Many years ago, the great scientists came out, and I would read the articles and used to save a, a folder on it. The earth was created four billion years ago, the scientists said. Then it got it to be eight, twelve, sixteen, twenty-four. I don't know what they're saying today, and they disagree among themselves. They don't know. They cannot know. They could talk about carbon dating, but as one of our Outsiders in the church said carbon dating can be completely thrown off if you have tumultuous conditions like in the pre-flood terrible upset in world conditions that God indicates when the angels rebelled against God. So any change, things have changed, and they don't know. But in the beginning, whenever that was, these two great beings existed out in eternity. The beginning was the Word, and the Word, the spokesman. He was the one who became the spokesman. And the spokesman was with God, the Word, the Logos, as it is in the Greek language, the revelatory principle, the one who did the speaking. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He made you, he made me indirectly by creating our first parents. He made the heavens, the earth, the scientists who believe in evolution, or as the British, I think uh, Mr. Roberts will understand this, the British call it evolution. And very, I like that pronunciation. It is evolution, (laughs) very evil. They start out with the whole universe. Usually they start out with laws. Well, the laws of science. Well, where did those laws come from? Did they come out of nothing? Did they come? They think humans came out of the warm ocean slime, and we've evolved. Did those great laws of physics and chemistry evolve out of the warm ocean slime? Where did those laws come from? And they go on from there because they don't understand. Some of the scientists are some of the most ignorant people on the earth when you think about it. They don't know the purpose of human existence. They don't understand why they're here, where they're going, or how to get there. Very smart men and a certain limited knowledge of physical things, but in understanding, totally ignorant, most of them. All things were created through him, the one who was the word, the Logos, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We know that's talking about Jesus Christ who emptied himself, who existed with God from eternity. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. No, they killed him. Some of our brethren think, well, boy, if you guys were preaching right, everyone would love us. No, they wouldn't. They They might have killed us before now. They killed Christ. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who believe in the authority, the power behind that name, the office that he holds as the Logos, the spokesman, the Son of God, the second being in the God family, the living head of the church, our merciful and faithful high priest, all those things are included in his name. 
who were born, we humans who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who really believe in God and grow and accept Christ can become full sons of God. And the world word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He had been with God from eternity, but he emptied himself of the coming of this flesh. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, filled or full of grace and truth. Back here, brethren, in Philippians, and you could turn there for a moment if you want to with me. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's verse 5. We're to have that attitude that Christ had, his mind. What was that mind? The mind of service, the mind of love, as Mr. Ronaldo was talking about, the mind of giving. So he had that mind, and he made himself then of no reputation. He did not count it, excuse me, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He'd been God. He had that power. But he made himself of no reputation. That particular phrase, most of the commentaries spell it out, it meant he emptied himself. The word, Greek word kenosis is used there. He was willing to give. He who was God, he who made the human race, who made the sun, the moon, the stars, the vast oceans, the mighty mountains, all the beauty that we see, he emptied himself of all that power and glory and magnificence. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave. The word is doulos. It meant a bond slave. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, one of the most horrible, ignominious deaths ever devised by man. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So that is Jesus Christ who became our Savior, our Lord and Master, our merciful High Priest, and our coming King. And, you know, we need to think about that and have that more deep and profound feeling about Him than we do. But first, let's go back a little bit and think about all these things. Let's turn, if you would, back to John 8 and verse 56 now. We first started in John 1. And I'm going to turn at this point to John 8, and here that tells us a little bit more about how Christ began and how long ago he existed. It says here in John 8 and verse 58 or verse 56, Jesus talking to the Pharisees said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Christ rejoiced, or Jesus of Nazareth, this young 32-year-old man or 31, whatever he was then, Saw Abraham, yes, he rejoiced to see it. Then the Jews said to him, what are you talking about, young Jesus of Nazareth? You're not even 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He used the very expression that is mentioned in in, uh, Exodus 3.14, which means the ever-living one, the one with life inherent within himself. And the Jews understood that. They'd studied the Old Testament. They knew that expression. They thought he was committing blasphemy. Before Abraham was, 
I existed and I am the I am that has come into this earth. And it made them want to kill him. And so he was able to get away from them and they were not able to kill him. God guided circumstances many times where that happened. So back in 1 Corinthians, let's turn there, if you would, to chapter chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And notice what it says here in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, that is, the fathers of ancient Israel, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. God gave them, or actually Christ was their God, and he gave them manna, and he gave them water, often supernaturally, caused water to come right out of a rock or whatever. They drank of that, and yet the ultimate drank, the ultimate food was Christ himself who gave it. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was the rock of the Old Testament. He was the God of Israel. He was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's who Christ was. The Protestants don't like to talk about that too much. They'll refer to it indirectly. It's kind of amusing to me because I've read the commentaries hundreds of hours teaching the epistles of Paul class and other classes. And I notice how they kind of dance around that. They sort of show they understand it, but they never spend much time on it because if they spent much time on it and thought it through or willing to let the truth come into their brain, they would know who gave the Ten Commandments. It was Christ. They don't want to say that Christ gave the Ten Commandments. They say they're nailed to the cross. They'd have to admit that. They would have to admit who created the Sabbath. It was Christ. Christ created the Sabbath and all the other things like that. It was Christ who did all of this. He has always been the one dealing with humanity, brethren. When you look back in the Garden of Eden, the eternal walked in the uh, garden in the cool of the day. And, uh, of course, Adam and Eve were hiding themselves on that one occasion. And he said, why are you hiding yourselves? Who was that? That was Christ, the one who later emptied himself and became Christ. He was their God. He was the God of Abraham, as it says right here. Before Abraham was, I am, and Abraham knew me. And, of course, he knew Abraham. He was Abraham's God. He was the God of the Old Testament in all these situations. That rock was Christ, says her over in verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. How do they tempt Christ? If Christ was born just as a human being or something you know, 1,500 years later, and and so on. No, that was the personality who existed back there, and they literally tempted Christ. Paul meant what he said. They tempted Christ back there. He was their God. He was the one they were putting to an unnecessary test. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 now, brethren. I want to turn to Genesis, the very first chapter. And here we find again how the earth came to be. It says here in Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When was that beginning? 6,000 years ago? No! It must have been billions and billions of years ago. 
And the scientists are probably right. They don't know how many billions, but they have a general idea. Maybe, at least they know it was a long time ago, more than they could figure out. Then the earth became, as the Hebrew should be worded, without form and void. It became and had been perfectly created. It became chaotic and confused. There was a pre-Adamic battle with the angels rebelling against God. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Who said, let there be light? Christ said, let there be light. And he was the ultimate light, and he was the light who came into the world. He's the one who said that, because he was the Word. He was the spokesman. And brethren, I think a lot of you older brethren understand it, but it's good to think about it more. Christ was always the one there doing the speaking. Christ was the one who guided Abraham. Christ is the one who guided Moses and used him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Christ was the immediate God of David. David said, my Lord, my God, I love you, I worship you, I adore you. Who was that? That was Christ. Certainly reflected on God the Father, but the immediate God of David, as many scriptures indicate, was the one who became Jesus Christ. So he's the one who made us all, over in chapter uh, 1 here in verse 26, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let me know, let us God the Father and God the Son were conferring on how it was to be done. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. We're created in the general image of God as he has two hands and two feet. He has a mind with creative imagination. And so do we. Unlike any other creature, God has made us in his image in many different ways. Let us. So they conferred, but the one who actually did it then, acting for the God family, was the one who became Jesus Christ, as all the rest of the Bible indicates. It says in chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, not any seventh day, the seventh day, and magnified it and sanctified it. Who was that God? Again, Jesus Christ is the one that made all things, as it says very clearly in the first chapter of John. Then he emptied himself and came into this earth to die for us and to be our Savior. He was the creator in the human flesh and only the one who had been the creator of everything, only his life, how come one man could die for all of us? Because he's the one who created all of us. That's why it wasn't God creating us through something else. It was God the Father creating us through the spirit personality who became Jesus of Nazareth. So you read back here in Matthew then, if you want to turn there with me, into Matthew chapter 27. Here was that great God a powerful spirit being whose voice boomed across the earth like rolling thunder and who emptied himself to come into the human flesh and die for us. His life was worth more than all the created beings because he had created us in the first place. Matthew 27, he was hanging on the cross. Verse 45, now on the sixth hour, and brethren, most of you know, look it up, that's high noon. At noon, when it should have been the brightest, 
until the ninth hour, till three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness. In what should have been the hottest and brightest part of the day, there was darkness, a supernatural darkness. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that had been written back in the Psalms, but he wasn't just saying it foolishly. He meant it, though. He felt it. God had delivered him to death, and for a short time he had no special help from God. And everything in the Bible indicates he felt the full pangs of death. Why have you forsaken me? And some thought it was Elijah calling, and they had a sponge, and they said, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Verse 49 and then, by the way, I'll digress for a moment, but right here, brethren, if you haven't done this, right after verse 49, a, another part of the verse ought to be there but is not, and quite a number of commentaries show that. Right there, it should say, another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. Look that up in Clark's commentary. He refers to a whole bunch of, of the original manuscripts that know that. And have it that way. And that is when Christ's blood was shed. He didn't die just of a broken heart. He didn't die because of the beating. They jammed a spear in his side back then, and he died. One of the other scriptures indicates they jammed in a spear later. That was later. This spear killed him, and the blood gushed out. He did not die of a broken heart. He died. His blood was shed, just like a Passover lamb, because he was the ultimate Passover lamb. Right then he cried out. Well, if you had a big spear jammed in your side, I imagine you'd cry out too. It didn't mean he was a sissy. But it's go, ah! The spear came in and the blood started spurting out and he yelled and he yielded up his spirit. His breath went out and the spirit went back to God. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That veil separated from the outer court from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in God's temple represented the very throne of God, the most holy place of all. And only the high priest could go in there and him only once a year. Anyone else would have been killed by God if they went in there. Yet this veil was ripped in two from the top to the bottom supernaturally. And the earth shook, the earth quaked, and the rocks were rent. The creation convulsed when his creator died. And God caused that physical sign to happen, showing us a little tiny bit of what that meant. Our creator died to pay for our sins. Let's go now to the early church. Acts chapter 2, brethren, if you would. Acts chapter 2. And let's begin reading here in verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Kind of get my watch off. They used to tell the joke in the Pasadena church, what does it mean when Mr. Meredith takes out his watch and looks at it? Nothing. <laughs> Keep right on going. <laughs> anyway. Mr. McNair and Mr. Waterhouse and I used to keep on going, but I didn't keep on going quite as long as Mr. Waterhouse. I think all the old-timers will tell you that. But anyway, we did used to preach a long time. Back in Acts 2, verse 22, Peter is crying out to them here in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. Attested by God, how? 
by miracles, wonders, signs, which God through, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Yes, God prophesied this. It was his will. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that it should be held by it. In the sermon, the first sermon in the New Testament church, Peter talked right away about Christ and how he'd been crucified and how he had been raised up. Then you'll notice as it goes on here in verse 38, no, verse 34, let's read this. He said, David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself says, the Lord, who is the Lord here, the Lord said to my Lord, and when you read it carefully, I won't take, I could give a whole sermon on this, but he's talking about the Lord, God the Father, said to David's Lord. Who was David's Lord? No one, David did not answer to anyone, humanly. His immediate Lord was the Christ. The great Lord, God the Father, said to David's Lord, the immediate Lord of Jesus Christ, sit on my right hand. Christ was to sit on the right hand of God the Father till I make your enemies your footstool. So who was David's Lord? Christ, the one who became Jesus Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he preached this powerful sermon to the Jews, showing them how they'd killed the Christ, and they were wrong. And they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. That's a th another something. The Protestant world hardly ever uses that word. And when they do, they very cleverly water it down. Repent means to be so sorry you turn around and go the other way. And what do you repent of? The whole Bible shows you repent of sin. What is sin? First John 3, 4. Sin is that's the way it's worded in the King James. Sin is the transgression of the law. As you look through the whole book of First John, it's obviously it's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's not talking about the traffic laws. It's not talking about the washings or ordinances of ancient Israel, but God's spiritual law. Repent and be baptized, a symbol of the burial of your old self. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ... Do it everything you do as a Christian in the name of Jesus Christ. He's your boss. He's your Lord. He's your master. He's your savior. He's your example. You do everything in his name. And when you understand, you should try to reflect Jesus Christ in everything you think and say and do the very best you can. None of us do it perfectly. But we should try and ask God's help and God's guidance and God's mercy so we can do it more. For the promise, it says, you'll do this, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a gift. For there are conditions. God didn't say, I'll just give my spirit to anybody, any old time. No. The condition is that you repent and are baptized in the name of Christ, that you really mean it. You are really sorry. And here's another thing, brethren, I've noticed through the years in counseling hundreds of ambassador college students over the years. I suppose I baptized about as many of them as anybody because they started so early. And then many hundreds of brethren around the world, including South Africa and Great Britain and Canada and the United States, of course. 
Many times when I'm counseling people, including some of you in the past, I'll say, well, why do you want to be baptized? Well, I want to be in the kingdom. Or I want to escape the great tribulation. Well, that's fine. I want to escape it too, you know. And I want the Holy Spirit. Okay. Because God said so. Okay, that's all fine. But do you have any personal deep feeling? Well, they kind of look puzzled. I say, what about Christ? And I might pause for a moment here. What is my sermon about today? If you want to write a title, Jesus Christ and you. Dylan, that's my title. (laughs) Jesus Christ and you. They don't think much about Christ. I want to get saved. I want to be in the kingdom. I want the Holy Spirit. I want to escape the great tribulation and save my hide. What about Jesus Christ? That's the main thing they thought about back in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ. I've been a sinner, and Jesus Christ paid for my sins. I love Christ. I adore Christ. I'm so grateful I have a Savior. He is risen. He is risen. The ancient Jews didn't understand that. And as they were converted, they began to realize, wow, this is exciting. Now we can be forgiven of our sins. And it's been proven to us because thousands of us have a cousin or a third cousin or a friend or a neighbor who actually was in that crowd who saw Christ after he was risen from the dead. Over 500 brethren saw him at once, it tells us that in 1 Corinthians. Thousands of the brethren must have had someone who actually saw it. They knew it. They knew that they knew it. It meant something. They were excited. You were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because he who had been God, he who had been the creator, whose voice shook the whole heavens and the earth, literally caused the mountains to shake. Total power and glory and majesty emptied himself. Gave all that up to come here to die for you. Every one of you in this room and to die for me. Some of us are willing to accept that. Some of us aren't. But he did do that. He did do that. He is our Savior if we'll accept him. But the way we accept him is not just get sentimental and say, I accept Christ, but to come to the place we know that God is God, a real God, and Christ is the real Christ of the Bible, and is sitting at God's right hand about to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. Lord means boss. We will do what he says. He said, remember back in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If he's your Lord, you will obey him, and you will surrender and be baptized. It's similar to the burial of the old self. I don't have time to go through all of that. Romans chapter 6 shows we're buried with him in baptism. We come up to walk in newness of life. So we're buried. We bury the old self. We give ourselves to God. We make a total, unconditional surrender. And when you are baptized, brethren, you are to make an unconditional surrender to God. You are making a covenant with your Creator. And in that covenant, you're accepting the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior, your Lord, whom you'll obey, your Master, your living head to guide you and to guide His church, and your High Priest, you pray to God, you go to God the Father through Him because you honor Him. You worship Him. You know that He and the Father are one. You honor Him constantly. Is God going to be jealous? No, He's not. <laughs> God tells you over and over in the Bible to do that very thing. He won't be jealous. He and the Father are one. He and the Son are one. So we have to understand that. And yet many of us leave that out. 
Why do you want to be baptized? To get saved? Do you want to be baptized to, to escape the tribulation? Do you want to be baptized, brethren, because you realize that Christ died for your sins and that you need forgiveness? You, each one of you, needs forgiveness even now. Even you ministers sitting here need forgiveness. And I need forgiveness. And we've got to be forgiven every day. We ought to repent every day and say, God, clean me up, scrub me out. It says back in 1 John chapter 1, he cleanses us of ongoing process. He cleanses us, a process, even now throughout our lives. He cleanses us from all sin. It's a lifelong process. As you know, we've had the saying, God ain't through with me yet. (laughs) He keeps on working with us all of our lives. But it's been done because of Jesus Christ. So you ought to have the constant awareness that, as I've said in past sermons, we are the church of the forgiven. And why are we forgiven? Because we have repented and because we have come to know that Christ is our Savior, our God, and we are willing to accept his sacrifice. And because we have a deep and a wonderful and a sincere and a profound feeling, a profound feeling for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And because many of you, brethren, like me, I understand it. You grow up in a Protestant church, and it's just Jesus, Lord, Jesus, this. And, uh, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know, because the Bible tells me so. And we sang those old Sunday school songs, and we didn't even know what they meant. And we didn't know about the true Christ. And we don't have that profound feeling for him that just permeated the early church of God. I hope I can have you respond to this. And that you will take action. It's not going to be some big one thing you do, but you could begin to think and pray and study these scriptures about Christ and make Jesus Christ more the center of your life. And God will not be jealous. He is your personal Savior. He is your personal head, your leader, your personal high priest, your coming king. He is your friend, and God the Father is your friend. But Christ is to be, and God set him there to be, more of a personal friend who worked with you for the Father. And the Father won't be jealous because Christ was assigned to do that very thing. He honors the Father, and we must honor the Father. We're not leaving the Father out. We're not going to the opposite extreme. Brethren, after Mr. Armstrong's, Mrs. Armstrong's death... And she wasn't cut off by God in some strange way, as most of you know. She was 75. She was 75 years old. She lived five years beyond the three score and ten, but God did let her die. And she obviously had been so close to him for about 50 years. It was almost 50 years of marriage. And so, of course, he was shaken by that, and it hurt him. And... He was never quite the same in certain ways. But he understood that God allowed that to happen. I'm trying to think of the tie-in with what I was saying here. Anyway, I'm sorry how that leaves my mind. But certainly he had that profound feeling, and she did too, about Jesus Christ. But he had to to go on without her. Oh, I know. He began to talk and preach at that time. I mean, several times. I heard him in ministerial meetings. I heard him in the auditorium. Or actually, I think that was before we got in the auditorium. And I heard him preach. And I heard him talk personally about the fact that we as a church, I think we have an old letter he wrote, an old uh, co-worker letter, where he said, Brethren, we have not emphasized Christ 
and his sacrifice the way we should. And this was actually just before her death, I think, or maybe right after. But he sensed that we had not been doing that as much as we should. And he was trying to repent of that. He did that on at least two or three occasions publicly. Plus, I heard him talk about that fact four to six or eight times. He realized that. He said, fellas, in our ministers' meetings, I had to come out of the Protestant world where all they talked about was the Lord Jesus and sweet Jesus and give your heart to the Lord. He said, I realized that's all they had. They didn't, they were taught you didn't have to obey the Ten Commandments. So I tried to go to the opposite extreme and without realizing it, you know, as one of our ministers said, we get in this ditch and then we run across the road and we jump in the other ditch. And either ditch is wrong. But we've got to get back to the middle. So, brethren, I hope we can understand that. It's not something new. It would not be new to Mr. Armstrong. But we have not had the profound feeling about Jesus Christ of Nazareth that the early church had. There are just no two ways about it. And I do hope we can get back to that. And God would be honored, I know, if we do. So you're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 38. Why? For the remission of sins. We have to have our sins forgiven. Do you want your sins forgiven? Of course you do, and most of you have been baptized. But many of us may not have had the deep feeling about the need for forgiveness and the need for Christ's sacrifice that we should have had. We ought to go back and have that always. So he tells us that here. Now notice, brethren, in chapter 3, if you would, Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Peter says in this sermon, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name, notice verse 16, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which is in him has made this man perfectly whole. So we are made perfectly whole through Jesus Christ and his physical sacrifice as well as the spiritual sacrifice. And he says, I know you did it in ignorance. I know, and also your rulers, verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his holy prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. So you're to repent and be baptized and that God may send Jesus Christ to you. He'll send him back to earth. And it's a time of restoration of all things, as we preach about. But all has to do, Christ's coming, his first coming, with forgiveness and our reconciliation to God. Notice chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Peter again is preaching. He said, Be it known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone. He was the rock of Israel. 
which was rejected by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How can we be saved? How can we be forgiven our sins? Only through Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is very, very important to understand. Now let's go to chapter 5, brethren, Acts chapter 5, and notice again the flavor, the atmosphere, the preaching, the teaching that they experienced there in the original church of God under Peter and Paul and so forth. Acts 5, verse 27, notice here in verse uh, 27, I need to turn further ahead here. When they had brought them out, that is, the the, uh, disciples who had been preaching Christ, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, Did we not strictly command you not to preach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to be his right hand, to be the prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He came to give us forgiveness of sins. So we want to understand that. We also have to understand verse 32. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So my sermon today is in no way trying to water down that part of it. We must obey God. But as Mr. Armstrong said, in at least two or three of those occasions when I heard him, he said, Brethren, sometimes we talk too much about just the law of God and the government of God and the commandments and so on, and we don't talk about Jesus Christ and his part in it. We don't talk much about him as our Savior as well as our head and so on. So we're leaving that part out perhaps too much. We want to talk about the law of God. Christ did. We want to talk about his teaching. But if you have Christ living in you, then all these other things will will certainly enter in and you won't be fighting that. But if you never have a deep, personal, profound feeling that I have had to be forgiven, that this one who had been with God from eternity in a place far away, way off, in human history and in the history of the universe, he emptied himself to be my Savior and to die for me, and I will have an everlasting love and loyalty to the Christ of the Bible who sits at God's right hand. It's not wrong to think about that, to pray about that, to cultivate that, to build that into your life and into your thinking. Notice now, brethren, over in chapter 8, if you would. This is Acts chapter 8. And let's begin reading here in verse 24. Acts 8 and verse 24. Oh, no. Verse 34. I can't read my own writing. And people who know me know why. (laughs) My writing's not very good. It's getting worse as I get older. Here, the eunuch asked Philip. Philip was talking to this Ethiopian eunuch. He said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say these things, of himself or some other man? He'd been reading in the book of Isaiah where it talks about a man having to die. 
Then Philip opened his mouth and preached, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. He said, He here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Well, frankly, you could say, Well, that sounds like Protestantism. Well, the thing you don't understand, perhaps, who was this eunuch? This eunuch was a man who had probably had to give up prestige back home and go all the way up to Jerusalem to worship with the Jews. Why? It undoubtedly was a holy day. He was keeping a holy day with the Jews, whom his people probably didn't think too highly of. He was the treasure of this great country, and he probably had to give up fame and prestige to a degree to do that, and he was willing to be, give his life to the God of the Bible. He meant it. And people back then often had a great deal more at, at stake, sometimes even physical danger unto death when they gave their life to God through Jesus Christ. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stop, and they went down, and Philip baptized him. But again, the constant emphasis on Jesus Christ. Now turn to chapter 9, if you would. Here is Saul, the Apostle Paul later. He had been, uh, of course, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against God's people. And he went to the high priest to get letters to Damascus to persecute any of the way. There was a way of life that Christ had taught, and they were following that. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and a great light shone around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was that voice? Well, you all know it was God, the voice of God, but it was the voice of the Son of God, who is also God, the voice of Christ, who said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. The writer of the New Testament, the Lord has said, because Christ is God. Christ is one of those two beings called the Lord. Christ said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then he said, what do you want me to do? So you and I, brethren, may have a time later, and I don't want to get you excited or have you proclaim yourself or say you had visions and dreams, which you didn't. Now, I'm not going to do that. But there may be a time in the future when Christ will literally speak to some of us as he did to Ananias and told this man here later, just a normal member, go to the street called Straight, and here's Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who's praying, and you lay hands on him and heal him. Christ may speak, or Christ may speak to us through an angel or some other way. He's alive. Jesus Christ is alive. He died for you. He gave his life for you. He shed his blood for you. He came into this flesh. He set us a perfect example about how to keep God's law, how to love God with all our heart and strength and mind, how to seek first the kingdom of God. He set the perfect example about how to love our neighbor as ourself. You don't necessarily love your neighbor more than yourself. And remember, brethren, when you love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't mean if your neighbor is your child, you never spank him. Or if your neighbor is someone in your employee or you're in charge of, including your children, you never correct them. Christ corrected the people under him. He yelled at them on occasion. He said, you snakes, you vipers, 
How can you escape the damnation of hell? He told the religious leaders of his day. I'm not going to go around and do that. I don't think God wants us to speak that strongly. We're not God in the flesh. But we do need to eventually show these ministers who profess Christ are false ministers if they teach against the commandments of God. Remember, it says back in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. He's a liar. That's what the Bible says. And so they don't know Christ. They don't know God. They know about Christ. They know about God, but they're not acquainted with God because they don't walk his way. They're not really acquainted with Christ because they do not do what he says. They have not experienced Christ living his life in them. That's what a Christian is all about. One who focuses on Christ. Again, it all goes back to my favorite scripture. But you all know it. I hope by now you new members. And, uh, uh, we may, I may have to have a prize and give you, I better not pass out money, <laughs> give you a whole bunch of candy or something. But anyway, Galatians 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ. I buried the old self. I've made a total surrender to God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I haven't died. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. And the Greek word there is literally ego, the old self. I buried the old selfish soul, self, so it's not alive in that sense. Yet not I, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, not just faith in, but the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if we live by his faith and he lives in us, that's the whole point. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, Paul said, I live with the faith of the Son of God. Christ must live in you. Christ must live in me. But if we kind of go back in our mind's eye and reconstruct the things that I've said and meditate on them, this great being came into this planet Earth. He came into this dimension of existence and emptied himself to die for you and to die for me. And we build in that way through Bible study, prayer, meditation. We should meditate on it, fasting, a profound feeling and a profound relationship with that great God, Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior, our living head. We believe in him guiding the work and church overall, our merciful and faithful high priest, our coming king, and we walk with him, we talk with him, we drink into this word, as I've told you back from John chapter 6, verses 51 to about 65, you're to eat and drink of Jesus Christ. He that does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no part in me, Jesus said. You've got to feed on Christ. This book is Jesus Christ in print. He is to live in you. And you're to walk with him and feed on this and have him, his attitude, his mind, the way he thinks, permeating the way you think about everything. And if you constantly study this, just keep the Bible handy and you're constantly drinking in of it, feeding upon it, then it can profoundly change your life and Christ will become more of reality and you will grow in faith and you will grow in understanding in that way. So all of us, I hope, want to do that. And I hope that we will do that. Brethren, one or more, two more scriptures in the book of Acts. 
Notice now chapter 10, if you would. Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. Here the apostle Peter is at the house of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. And he said, they knew the word, that word you know, he said, which are proclaimed throughout all Judea, began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. So he's talking about Christ's ministry. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed with the devil, for God was with him. And, of course, that's part of the gospel. That's what he was preaching right there. There's some people in our midst that who at least have been in our midst that perhaps some are still here or I'm here on this tape we'll send out. Oh, no, the gospel is just about the coming government. No, it's not. The original gospel was primarily emphasizing the person and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what it was primarily about. But they did talk about the coming kingdom. And as time went on, they emphasized that more. And certainly that's the biggest thing we talk about and no doubt should. People take the first part for granted, but we must never leave that first part out. Because if we do, we don't have a profound relationship with our Savior. And so we want to do that. So Christ went about doing good. And we are witnesses to all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree or a cross, a stake, sorrows. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses whom God, uh, uh, chosen by God, uh, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, Christ, who was ordained by God to be the judge Christ was given by God, brethren, to be your judge, my judge. We're not going to be judged directly by God the Father. Many don't understand that. We're going to be judged directly by Jesus Christ acting for the Father. The judge of the living and the dead. Verse 42. To him the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive what? Remission of sins. If you believe in Christ, that is wonderful good news. Wonderful good news. Part of the gospel, which means good news. You can have your sins forgiven. But too many people have grown up, and some of you young people in the church have grown up, and you just assume you join the church and keep Saturday instead of Sunday, and that's it. No. It's having a personal relationship with the Christ of the Bible with the one who emptied himself, who died for your sins, who died for my sins. And we can have our sins forgiven. We can have a relationship with God and Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit in a way we could never have apart from a profound repentance and acceptance of the true Christ, the true Christ of the Bible. He then becomes our hero. He then becomes the ideal. He then becomes the focus of our attention under God the Father, of course. We don't worship Michael Jordan, the basketball player. We don't worship uh, Frank Sinatra, the former singer. We don't worship all these Hollywood idols. The kids get on me. My kids, I have the old ones. I don't know all the new ones. <laughs> Sorry about that. But that we human beings tend to worship those matinee idols, superstars of sports, 
superstars of the, of the Hollywood scene. They're nothing. They'll die. They'll be forgotten. They'll probably never be mentioned again in tomorrow's world. Christ will always be mentioned through all eternity. He is our hero. He is our God. He is the one we can look to and exalt in and get excited about. The one who died for us and lives to be our Savior, our boss, our living head to guide our lives, our merciful high priest. We go to God the Father through him and in his name. Perhaps picturing, not a face, but just picturing a blinding light at the Father's right hand. They're both sitting there. Not wrong to say Father in heaven and picture a great being, Jesus at the Father's right hand. He's there. He understands us. He was tempted in all points like as we are and yet without sin. He loves us. He was willing to come and die for us. Him the Father want with all of their being for us to live forever. They want other people in their family. They could have stayed the way they were. They wanted to share that love with others. And so they made us in the image of God. And he died to help make that possible. So we want to have a profound feeling about that, as I've said always. So I hope we can get that and really understand it and, and never forget it. No, Christ always honored God by keeping the commandments. And obviously, we don't want to water that part down. Christ back in the, uh, back in Matthew 19:17. if you want to just write it down, I won't turn to it. But a young man saying, Lord, what can I do to have eternal life? Matthew 19:17. if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. We all know that. Over and over, Christ taught the commandments. He set us the example. He said in John 15, John 15, verse 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. That is what he taught. But I'm not emphasizing that in the sermon today. I just want any of you who wonder, that's, that's still very important. But we've got to get to this deep, profound relationship with him and not leave that part out. Notice now in Ephesians, if you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, brethren. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, beginning verse 4, he talks about, well, verse 3, let's start there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, Ephesians 1 Verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So he chose us in him from the very beginning, having predestined us to be sons of God. It says adoption, but the original Greek means to make a son, as the Revised Standard Version has it. And that word does not mean adoption. It can mean make a son. He makes his sons or beget, begettle of sons, as some have it, in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, by which he has made us to be accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Notice verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Some of us maybe just read right over that, and I know I used to more because I thought, well, that's all Protestant stuff. No, that's not Protestant stuff. That's what the Apostle Paul preached as the gospel. We can be so grateful that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
So we always want to understand that and have a wonderful feeling about that. He died for us. He died for us. And we should be grateful and have a profound feeling about that. So are are you always conscious of the need for forgiveness? I want to ask you that. I hope you are, brethren. Let's never get self-righteous. All of us make mistakes. I make mistakes every day of my life. And every morning I get down on my knees and ask God to forgive me and spend a considerable part of my prayer going down the line about humanity, jealousy, lust, and greed and try to think how I've reflected that and ask God to forgive me and clean me up and scrub me out. He has to do that with every one of us. Ask God for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and have realized the need for that. And the need also, brethren, I want to bring in one other thought here. Always think of what what are you? I preached on that a few months ago. I am a Christian. Think about it. Well, I'm a member of the church of God, or we're getting the work done, or we're warning the world about the end. Okay, that's all fine. It's good. But I am a Christian. You want to say to yourself, I am a follower of Christ. I am a Christian, and I'm not ashamed of that. And Christ must live in me, as Paul said. Christ must live in me. I am a Christian. Never lose your identity, that relationship with the true Christ of the Bible. And again, we must always emphasize the true Christ, not the false Christ of Protestantism, who was like a smart aleck young man and came and did away with his father's law. No, Christ did not do that. Christ said, I have kept my father's commandments. He showed us in everything he did how to keep the commandments. He magnified the commandments. He said back in Matthew 5, I did not come to do away with the law, but to magnify the law. And he showed by, he said, you're not only not to, not to kill, you're not to hate anyone. And he said later in chapter 5, Matthew 5, he said, He who even looks on a woman, you've heard you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, even a man who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. He made the law of God not less binding, all the more binding. It's to be reflected even in your thoughts. That's the true Christ. We worship the true Christ of the Bible, not some other Christ. But we've got to have a profound feeling, nevertheless, about that Christ, the Christ of the Bible, and our need for forgiveness through his sacrifice. Turn to Philippians now, if you would. Philippians chapter 1, and notice beginning here in verse 18. Philippians 1, he's talking here about those who are going around preaching of self-will. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Why don't they talk about the kingdom of God? Well, Christ is the king of the coming kingdom of God. Christ is an absolutely vital part of the kingdom of God. Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Notice how often Christ is mentioned The supply, he could say, the Spirit of God. But here he says the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ because the Spirit comes from the Father and from Jesus Christ. So Paul emphasizes Christ over and over and God the Father, of course, guided him to do that. 
according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And brethren, I'm sure that Wayne Pyle is thinking about that right now. He and I have talked about it two or three times recently. And I think about that because I could die any day or any month or year at age 82 and having had two or three strokes. I know that. I need to give my life to God and to use the energy God still gives me, though it's less than it used to be, and the time that I may have left to serve God the best I can in my time, my talents, my personality, the way I organize myself, how I can put first things first and everything I can do. I, I should try to glorify Christ, whether by life or by death. Or if I were to start to die, should I get up here in front of you and say, Oh, I'm about to die and I'm afraid of death. No, that's not going to help any of you. I'm not afraid of death. And I know Wayne Pyle's not afraid of death. He's all man. He's pushing himself, as Mr. Ames said, to come over to the office when he could par- hardly walk. I saw him the other day. He was there a couple of days ago with this uh, 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 TV uh, representative, TV station representative to get us on better TV. And he, he was sitting at my table and he was bending over and I could see he looked like he was ready to fall over. I knew that. I don't know how much that man realized. He was a smart man, a smart young man. He didn't say anything, but he probably realized this. I'm sure Wayne told him I had cancer. Very weak. He just keeps right on anyway. And I hope all of you will do the same. We want to magnify Jesus Christ, whether by life or by death. When it time came time for Jacob to die, did he say, Oh, my, please, I'm sorry, and all of you pray for me. It's all right to pray. But, I mean, did he wail and moan and say, Oh, I'm afraid of death? No, he got Reuben and Levi and Judah and all the other guys together, his 12 sons. And he said, Okay, guys, it's my time to go. And this is going to happen to you, and this is going to happen to you, and this is going to happen to you, and you'd better do this, and you take care of that. He gave them some parting instructions, so to speak. And that was, he was all man. And God wants us to have that same attitude. We're here for a short time. Our life is like a vapor, like a little wisp of smoke. It gets in the air, then a little wind comes along, and it's gone. That's like our life compared to all eternity. So, brethren, each one of you and you young people, some of you young people here, you think, well, I'm going to live for 50 more years. No, you're not. Probably not in this life, frankly, because of the things that are starting to happen right now in prophecy. But I won't dwell on that. But I used to feel sorry for the older people, as I've told some of our ministers. I really did. I thought, well, poor old Mr. Hoyle, and he finally died at age 84, I think it was. And I was kind of surprised because no one had ever died at that point in the first few years I was in the in the work. It seemed like no one died. He finally died. And uh, Dr. Hay pointed out, he says, well, you know, he, he was 84. He's 14 years past the three score and 10. We all die. But I thought, well, I'm sorry for the old people. They're going to die. I was, I, I was for a sense, but then all of a sudden Dick Armstrong died. And he was 29, 29. And it suddenly hit me when others died. You don't have to be 84 or 76 or any other number, you can die at any time. And you young people the same way, unless you walk with God, talk with God, 
and serve God, he may not protect you as much as he would otherwise. And you need to realize that God will allow even some of us in his service to die in his service as he did even Stephen, who was honored by God. And Stephen may have been only 28 or 30 years old when he died as a martyr of God. He does not let all of us live to be exactly 70. So think about it. Give your life to God while you have the opportunity. Don't wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow night not ever come around, so to speak. Do it today or do it this week or do it at least this month or this year. Act. But each one of us has to act day by day, even those of you who are in the church. Examine yourself. Is Christ in you? As we read back in Second Corinthians 13, is Christ in you or are you disqualified? Is Christ living his life in you? Some of us in the church do not have Christ living his life in us. We've got to have that profound realization. Christ must live his life in me. And I love him. I adore him. I want to give my life to him. So I want to move with all boldness as always. So now so Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. If I live, that's Christ living, because he'll be living in me. But to die is gain. In Paul's case, he thought, I've served God with all my heart, and to just go to sleep might be better. I won't have many rocks thrown at my head. I won't spend any more nights being beaten up and trying to somehow sleep on the jailhouse bed or floor with raw back being beaten and lashed with whips. I can just go to sleep and be in the arms of Jesus. To be with Jesus is far better. Think about it. These things are real. And as the tribulation begins in a few years, might be 10 or 15, I know, we're going to realize that. This life is not where it's at. We want to have a real relationship with Christ, a real relationship with God, and having Christ live his life in us. Let's turn back, brethren, now to Acts, the seventh chapter, if you would. Turn back to Acts 7 and notice what we have here. Acts 7. Here is the example of the Apostle Paul who was at, at a, a, a stoning where they were going to stone Stephen. And when the Pharisees heard that Stephen was telling them, you've been betrayers and murderers of the Son of God, verse 54, Acts 7, 54, when these Jewish leaders heard that, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, that is Stephen, and saw the glory of God. What was he allowed to see? The glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen had worshipped Christ, walked with Christ, served Christ, and now even unto death. And so God allowed him to see a, a vision of a magnificent being up there, shining light right at the right hand of God the Father. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And these Jews did not understand. They were blinded. Some of these men around us will be blinded. Maybe kill some of us before it's all over. Think about it. Are you willing? I'd better be willing. 
I want to give my life as a living Christ sacrifice. I've tried to do that for many decades. I haven't done it perfectly, but let's be willing to be a dead sacrifice too if we need to. Then they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they stoned him. They took him out and they threw rocks at his head and crushed his skull. Must have been horribly painful. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen, who, as he was dying, called on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He called on God because Jesus is God. What were his thoughts? How did the early Christians think? How did Stephen think? Did he have a real powerful relationship with Christ? Was Christ real to him? You better believe it. Here's a young man as he was dying. His immediate thought was Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with his sin. And when he said that, he fell asleep. If you were to die, would those be among your final words? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Is Christ that real to you? Or have you grown up in the church and just sort of heard about various things and technicalities of prophecy and keep the law and the government of God and the end is coming? All that's okay. But you've got to have that personal relationship with that great being who sits at the right hand of God, who is your Savior, who existed with God the Creator, the Father from eternity, and became your Savior, your personal Savior, your personal head, your high priest at God's right hand, where you might say on occasion, not saying we have to, but you might, and have that attitude, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This was the atmosphere and the spirit of the original church of God. We must cry out, brethren, and I ask all of you and your brethren around the world who may hear this later, cry out for God to restore that spirit within us and build that relationship with Jesus Christ. So we must do that. And then we would have, if we do that, I'm sure, far more healings, far more blessings, far more encouragement far more revelations of the power of God because we would have that profound relationship with the Son of God, our living head, and our coming King. Let's do that.